Hello and welcome to Art Monthly's talk show. I'm Chris McCormack, assistant editor at Art Monthly, and today I'm joined by the writer Lizzie Homersham, the poet and critic Terry Smith, and art writer and critic Marina Bishmit. Lizzie will be discussing the recent debates about the boycott of Zabludovich's collection in London and what are the stakes of compromising as an artist in today's shortage of publicly funded spaces, especially when one is hungry. Marina Schmidt talks about the recent exhibition at Cubit Gallery of video artist Rachel Ripka's recent work, Letter of Complaint. But first, I'd like to start with Cherry Smith, who discusses the work of Sarah Zay currently at the Victoria Mirror Gallery in London. Uh, the US-based artist, US-based artist is known for her careful and in many ways obsessive arrangement of everyday, everyday materials. Uh, can you start by briefly describing a typical Zay work? Yeah, it was interesting, Chris, because I was expecting the typical kind of very meticulous, almost fastidious sprawl of materials, uh, fine materials. They almost look like materials, sculptures that are made out of the remains of obsolescent things and uh, yet they're incredibly well ordered and they're very inviting and she uses metal transparent boxes and things attached to them with pins and wire Mm -hmm. and um, lots of paper clips and you know really interesting objects and I was expecting that and then I got to Victoria Miro and it was a completely different kind of thing Um, well I thought the strongest piece actually didn't use any of these things um, and it was a very flat uh, piece that its main motif was the New York Times yeah. that she collected for three months during a residency and she took the first and back pages and excised all the photographs and uh, put in these gorgeous abstract photos of kind of what would remain in the post-Anthropocene world um, fire, sky, water um, and then the headlines of the papers became like titles to these mm-hmm. photos. And so you were really drawn into questions of poverty, disease, immigration, uh, climate crisis. And yet it was very quiet and they were all old news, but yet it was incredibly pertinent. Mm-hmm. So I thought the way she really dealt with the question of global mass communications and how it tends to level things out. And, and yet she... She pointed to aspects of these uh, front front pages by objects, um, sort of tiny bits of shredded paper and bits of wood. And, and again, I loved that. It was a very sort of quiet choreography of pointers. And um, I was, yeah, I was just very taken by it, how she used the facts and they became artifacts under these desk lamps. And it really... It was very quiet and reverent in that space, and I'd expected something um, playful and um, kind of almost a little bit more familiar. And yeah. I, I was really, I was really surprised, and I thought that was an extraordinary piece. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think similarly because I, I was looking at the pictures from this particular installation I, I've not seen it but I just see the images um, and there, there is that sort of lyricism that's typical of Zay which is this you know very carefully choreographed assemblage of everyday materials from tea bags to q-tips to you know very sort of fine materials of the everyday um, and then in this case it's very different it's much more spare and uh, yeah flat I mean typically it's very f- I mean it's just sheets of paper laying on a floor um, I was interested also, you talked about the sort of obsolescence of the actual material itself. So the, the newspaper is both obsolescent 
and also in a way the the news itself and how they still reverberate maybe you could talk about this sort of like this sort of this play in a way of both obsolescences yeah well as a former print journalist i always feel terribly mournful in this you know the the death of the quotidian um, paper um and uh you know that's that's my generation and i think I, i'm trying to transfer onto reading the news on the iPad but it becomes very directed. I guess the headlines become even more important and I'm used to again a visual sprawl that's much bigger, a metre wide and I read things that I don't even know I want to read mm. when it's there in front of me. I love the visual lines of reading reading a paper and when I'm on the iPad I only I only go by headlines so it's it's like a kind of uh, how can I say, like a, I don't know, is the difference between, I don't know, um, some sort of convex and concave <laughs> space. I'm not even sure how it works, but um, I feel like I have to train myself. And in a way, she was training the eye to go back and maybe a younger generation to engage with this format and say, look, look at this headline about abortion, which, you know, we could have been seen for the last 30 or so years. Um, and uh, I just thought it's it's important, especially when people are accused constantly of looking away from crises, you know, around immigration or climate. And this seemed to be look back here, look at look at this silk screen photo of the midnight sky, which of course we don't know what it looks like anymore in London. And she used these gorgeously chased midnight skies from all over the world in another piece called Midnight Series. And I just think it, it had that quality to me of um, bringing new technology to meet analog methods in a really kind of fresh and engaging way. I mean, I mentioned Via Selmans, who is an artist I love, who did these gorgeous charcoal drawings mm. of night skies. And and I, I, I don't know whether that was a conscience, conscious reference or not, but for me it was that, again, I felt engaged on so many levels, art historical levels and then, you know, technological levels that, about how we, how we look at information and, and receive news. Yeah, because in a way... Also, the, the other element that's sort of very typical today is the precarity. And you talk about this meaning as well, the double play of that meaning, which is that there's a careful, what is seemingly a careful arrangement, and it is a very determined and obsessive arrangement, has an inbuilt within it this very fragility, um, maybe not so much in these newspaper pieces, which feel a little bit more steady in a way, but typically they have this sort of vertigo, like some of them are very tall and some of them are on the verge of collapsing, and yet they still retain a sense that they actually... Uh, you know, they exist, but in a very sort of yeah, temporary way. I mean, one can only imagine the time it takes to construct one of these pieces, let alone take it down, and then the same sort of levels of care and attention that goes into any, well, let's say, artwork of that value and status, you know. Um, so talking about the level at which precarity exists, not just from an individual level, but in, t in terms of also the work and how she sort of plays with this space as well, uh, do you want to talk a bit about this notion of precarity in, in Zay? Well, in, in other pieces uh, called Models, she, she builds these uh, incredibly delicate and, again, meticulous spheres made out of wood and paper and twigs. And they look like habitats, but they look like deserted habitats or um, 
And, and they also have the sense of standing as metaphors for globes that, again, are, are not inhabited or you don't know really how to assign value or um, give them um, a sort of place to, to, to rest. And, and that sort of, I think the, the fragility of those worlds is also about the instability of sculptural choices now. It, it feels like formalism that might have been available to her before is not helpful anymore. It's like, what do you do with the ideas of social practice and engagement if you really actually love just working with materials? But, you know, what, what, how can it serve you? And I felt like it wasn't just the precariousness of habitats and environments and the planet. It was also the precariousness of uh, engagement through material as an artist and and that was very moving and um, I, I loved uh, as, a, as a poet myself I loved the titles you know model for a passing thought model for a poem and rhyme and and again you know rhyme is almost obsolete and and yet the new formalists in America were bringing that back to try and see if there's something we can still do with mm. it so yeah I find it um, yeah, I think the, yeah, the, the word itself, the mo uh, model, proposes a sort of pause. Itself. You talk about this notion of a pause. And the model, in a way, indicates something that's not quite yet finished anyway, or a proposal for something, a bit like a pause in a way as well. Uh, do you want to talk about the idea of what that, that pause stands for? Because you do mention Tim Park's book as well and his idea of this, the free-flowing, sort of overwhelming space of material, culture, uh, the Twitter feed, I guess, and things like that. Um, talk, talk a little bit about how Zay seems to interface this very overwhelming space of material overflow and where you feel she stands within that too as, a, as an artist. Yeah, I, I like that Tim Park's quote, it's all feedback and no feed. And, and to get feed, you have to go to deep thinking or deep looking. You have to be very still and not keep reacting and not keep checking and and that sort of leveling of everything that comes to you in a screen has got the same priority it pings with the same volume you don't get well I suppose you can tune your pings but um, I I really felt like she was trying to look at you know again what's happening to reading what's happening to um, literature itself, what's happening to the novel. And, you know, in a way, Eliot was saying after Joyce, the, the novel is dead. But, you know, over 100 years later, it's not dead, clearly. And I, I was just um, very interested in how that linked to what Lizzie was writing about, about the the post-internet artist. And it, it's uh, it's an interesting idea that you can be within this world, but still not not use the the constructs and the environment of the internet to communicate you're you're kind of pulling back from that and using very um everyday you know um objects like bits of wood and stones and fake stones real stones really looking at how material tells truth i suppose and um that that physicality is very different from how you interface with a glass screen Mm, definitely, definitely. Um, I think, can I just yeah. um, interrupt? I mean, I actually thought that some of the practices you're describing and this interest in a post-apocalyptic world were um, quite relevant to some 
you needn't necessarily call them post-internet, but I guess I define post-internet in a kind of stepped way in that um, since Web 2.0, everyone who has a website or engages in in working online to some extent or has installation shots of their work online can be considered as a kind of first first step towards, I think post-internet as a kind of age, not as a way of working necessarily. But um, anyway, some artists more readily associated with that um, term, like Holly White, for example, or Megan Rooney, I think they've done really similar kinds of things with basic materials and sort of wrapping things and saving things or imagining the shipwreck situation in the um, collaborative show where they had these kind of towels made um, into the shape of swans and this kind of imagined situation where there was nothing but the things that had been saved and the things that could be made with what was left over from the shipwreck. Um, so I think there's a lot of relevant a lot of kind of parallels in a way, or an artist like Camille Henri, for example, I think also works with that sort of mass of information that sort of edits some kind of narrative out of masses and masses of things and um, tries to draw out threads in various ways. Yeah, I think anthropology is a way to map or kind of shape material c culture and the almost expansive nature by which that's being felt, let's say. And I think felt is the key because it, it feels like there is an emotional conduit mm. driving a lot of that kind of practice. Yeah. Um, similarly, I mean, I can think with the, uh, Sarah Zay's newspaper pieces, numerous other works that sort of fit. Marine Hagonier, I don't know if you remember this piece that she did where she found, uh, she put together Soviet newspapers and uh, painted sort of geometric paintings over the top of the images. So a bit, you know, cop you know, sort of indicating sort of supremacist position and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. I can even think of Robert Gober and his mm -hmm. stacks of newspapers, you know, and even further back from cubism, you know, the recurring motif of the everyday through the newspaper is, is there, isn't it, in terms of it, how it's been felt, seen in a gallery, certainly. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that she's brought in, well, quite a typical... An everyday quotidian material, but uh, still gives it a kind of a new feeling. Um, I think also what was interesting uh, we've not really talked about is her use of geological images instead of you know using geological images on the covers of the newspapers. Um, do you want to say because I think there is an ecological undertone in Sarah Zay's work, um, which is about the fabrication of material, which is about mass production, um, and in a way this sort of harks to a different a different material strand perhaps or a different thinking yeah is it is it a, I, I just come back to this idea of, of crisis and it not becoming old news but we're treating it like old news it, it's something about that that throwaway quality of it and um, you know we used to hoard newspapers it was known as the, the paper mountain in our house and and now it's 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 invisible and is it is it more easy then to turn off from what's happening? Um, and I guess what's interesting is the way she tries to perhaps de-aestheticize these images of the landscapes because they're incredibly close up. There are no people. There are no buildings. They are they're kind of I, again. It's that idea of is it abstract and is it post-human somehow mm -hmm. and um, does that change how we look at 
the the tones of the grey sky or the grey sea, um, what does it do to our responsibility as viewers with it? And I I like that tension and I don't know... um, Yeah, I felt like it was very pointedly, ecologically relevant work, yeah. Mm. Good. Well, we'll c- might come back to Sarah's day, but we're going to move on to Rachel Rupka's work, which uses, again returns to the notion, let's say, of paper and the materiality of that and also what it means to draw or to write in this instance. And it's sort of how it's insistently felt. And it's a, it's a video work that's just been made by Rachel Rupka called Letter of Complaint. And uh, in it, it sort of sees three protagonists writing various letters to an unknown sort of source of, well, pain, complaint, etc and so forth uh, Marina you went to see the show do you want to start just by explaining the kind of the setup itself and how you know how Rachel sort of addresses this subject in the work uh, yes yeah, so is this is good yeah um, it's I guess set up quite plainly but also quite immersively in the space and there's a kind of cutting between these immer- kind of enclosed room tight close-ups environments and a kind of open cloudy um montage of sky and it kind of cuts cuts in between this feeling of enclosure and this feeling of boundlessness and the voiceover is a sort of unifying thread between between these but what's also um interesting i realized today from um doing some further research with with Rachel is her interest in entropy, which maybe connects to the kind of ge- geological and geophysics that we were just touching upon in Sarah Jay's work. Uh, this idea of the complaint as a form of misdirected energy, which I thought was was really interesting, and, and she described it in terms of entropy. So on the one hand, there's a kind of taking power, a degree of empowerment in the decision to sit down and write a letter of complaint. And it's very much for Rachel a focus on the act of writing even more than the mm-hmm. kind of product of the complaint, the the process of coming into that relationship with a constituted authority who can uh, address you as a subject, as a reasonable subject who wants to restore a degree of order to affairs that they see is missing. On the other hand, it's a kind of mis- misdirection or a kind of um, um, runs runs into into a kind of into the sand. It's like a action action for remedy that runs into the sand in a way. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a twelve minute long video, mm. and in it, uh, yeah, these as you say, these, these three protagonists, and they're sort of set in a very particular era, or what mm. seems to be a very particular era. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as you said, it's intercut by these images of clouds uh, that sort of give this sort of almost beatific kind of quality mm. to the scene. Uh, and then over that, yeah, there's this, this narrator that's sort of narr- yeah, speaking, or what we assume is conjuring the mm. thoughts of these three mm. protagonists who are obsessively, or, you know, writing or rewriting mm. the complaint to, and it Describe one of the complaints yeah. so we can uh, so we can have an idea of what she says. Um, I mean, it's a kind of interesting neutrality that gets constructed in between all these complaints, and yet, and yet, two of them, at least two, I think, are actual real complaints, mm-hmm. and others are sort of stock letters. So it's a kind of another, in a way, another iteration of 
the interest in stock imagery, stock subjectivity, stock sort of interactions that Rachel has been exploring in her uh, last couple of films, uh, Wine and Spirits and Ten Seconds or Greater. Um, but I could describe one of the one of the complaints. I think it's the one that's kind of remained in my mind because it was the most sort of um, emotive but also absurd. Um, and it had to do with someone complaining to a bus company because of the behavior. <laughs> they observed the bus driver in the bus driver in sort of almost kind of running over two ladies who had run across the road in order to catch the bus because they were running for the bus and they had to run in front of the bus. The bus had to um, sort of veer away from them and in revenge, the bus kept going. Um, and there's a sort of breakdown of this that is inc so incredibly vivid, you almost think you're seeing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I yeah. remember this complaint too, yeah. actually, the most. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I believe that one was actually part of a file of real complaints against okay. against the bus company. Um, so yes, there's a very sort of interesting oscillation between this sort of incredible, almost kind of abject particularity of the complaint, but also a kind of a stock relationship or a stock reference where mm -hmm. this comes from, the stock relationship of the complaint. Yeah, I think certainly as well. What I, I also was drawn by this work, or during, yeah, what I liked about this work particularly was this idea of the dressy, the addressee, mm. you know. And I think, I mean, typically, I mean, I'm sure hundreds of, we typically write letters of complaint in our heads all the time, you know, readdressing or rebalancing a kind of what we feel and upset to ourselves. Mm. Um, and I think the first, the first protagonist, she's constantly stammering and stuttering over even how to write the first line of this mm. letter you know dear sir no not correct uh you know uh, dear you know and it, it's this sort of like stammering towards even i can't find my addressee the subject is missing mm. and I, I think for me that's always quite i was completely drawn by that as an mm -hmm. idea because often there is no addressee you know society that who are we addressing i think mm. so i think rachel really taps into something yeah. Like, yeah yeah so there's a kind of like inherent sort of like meekness and almost kind of like subjugates like um, subjection in this genre of the letter of complaint but there's also like a kind of um, passive aggressive yeah. kind of belligerence and I think that kind of comes from this sort of tentativeness gesture of like seeking power or seeking a voice and as you grope for this voice you are looking looking for that addressee mm. but that may um, that may be, again, a kind of like self-referential and perhaps entropic activity, well, also because yeah. it's individual, yeah. of course. And you never yeah. really see them, well, delivering or posting the letter, or let alone getting really writing them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're sort of hovering. hovering I mean, you talk a little bit about the history of letter writing. Mm -hmm. Should we talk about that, that moment of where it became something more familiar to people mm -hmm. in life? Because, it, of course, there was times when people weren't writing letters. Yes. <laughs> Um, well, I think it's also the kind of the materiality of the stationery, the desk, the letter writing environment, which is so important in the film and uh, thus also perhaps Rachel's decision to avoid another set of aesthetics, which are to do with the typewriter, which we also kind of fetishize now, but not to the extent perhaps certainly by um, various commercial uh, agencies who, that fetishize like the ink and the... And mm -hmm. the whole kind of aristocratic apparatus of, of the letter writer in their study. And I think this is what's kind of captured 
in in the film and that's also its kind of relationship to a kind of stock image of like a glamorous beautiful sort of like um very sort of class stratified english past like downton abbey mm. it definitely seems like a kind of um reference a sort of mass mass nostalgia or a kind of like um what has been referred to sort of like keep keep calm and carry on kind yeah. of vogue in in contemporary life for like those sort of um more more civilized times so it it is in a way also related to a kind of post internet i guess normality or hegemony uh especially because as also came out a little bit in my conversation with Rachel she's really makes a connection between the prevalence of the stock image and post in a lot of post internet work and and her own work but she really also tries to differentiate them primarily kind of on this level of the subject mm-hmm. and like fleshing out the problematic of the subject within this this kind of industrial set of imagery whereas in a way post post internet kind of looks for a certain kind of aesthetic and for her the aesthetic obviously does relate to a kind of manufacturing of a glamorous past but the stock itself has a more kind of industrial and sort of un- unglamorous origin yeah so it, <laughs> yeah. sorry i think maybe that was a little bit uh, complicated no but it, yeah mm. i yeah i thought the pauses between letters had that more stock feel with the clouds mm. and the sort of zooming out mm. and they set you up for the next letter but with this kind of blander okay we're going to prepare now and hear this voice and zoom out to the yeah. to the clouds as we it's al- it's almost reflect. as if you are kind of almost zooming into the inside of someone's consciousness mm. <laughs> with the clouds so it's like you are zooming into a room you're zooming into someone in the room without really much camera movement or like cut between yeah, and then yeah. into someone's head yeah, but also in a way as you talked about Downton Abbey it has this sort of english pastoral yeah you know nothing's going to be harmful mm. you know the image of the english pastoral is very safe and there is this sort of gentility that's also being played out in some respects yeah. which is actually there's no because we're talking about a minor problem there mm. can't be any major problems mm. we're kind of also blinding ourselves to the bigger picture a little bit and i think there's that underscored throughout it <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> the sports center sounded quite um quite <laughs> devastating actually yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um there's also there's also I think a kind of a complaint about a wage differential which I actually missed out from my review which is which is interesting that maybe because it was maybe slightly more serious complaint mm-hmm. it didn't register with me as as the kind of complaint that gets um articulated here. Yeah and also I guess as you said the sort of the post internet I mean we're using that word quite a lot now but uh, in this in this conversation mm-hmm. but um the notion of the complaint itself and of course we're sort of dogged by the notion of twitter and mm. this ni- idea now of where i suppose the notion of complaints are much quicker mm. uh you know people are standing in in airline checkout lounges you know complaining about delays and straight away they're being sa- dealt with because of how that's read yeah, by corporate management yeah <laughs> um it's just the speed by which that letter is now being addressed at <laughs> perhaps yeah is this a good thing i don't know <laughs> So the complaint is much more like op- operational. Yeah, you know, there's a definite. In a way, it's no yeah. longer a kind of leisure pursuit, like based in like someone's internal yeah. fantasy of the world, like those clouds. Yeah, it's not. It's much it, more yeah. functional. There's still yeah. something kind of fantastical about it, in that you're kind of constructing your, the recipient of your letter, and I I found that especially about the first 
letter, the opening one, where that was, it really made me laugh how stuck it was. And it, some of the phrases reminded me of emails I write all the time for work and to people that I've never seen before. Yeah. Um, so things like, she stumbles over whether to write um, with regards to or yeah. concerning. And they're all these really bland, kind of connective and introductory um, terms. And um, normally the kind that you address to people in a quite formal way and people you don't necessarily know or are familiar with. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of relationship that I guess you have in many modern complaint letter scenarios or modern tweet yeah. complaints yeah. or yeah. something. Like you, you don't really imagine who's actually sitting behind the the um, Twitter account at that given company. They're probably, I don't know, some really underpaid worker who's thinking, oh God, like all these things coming in and do yeah, I respond or does that mm. just like further embroil them into this situation where they're going to have to end up compensating the, <laughs> the complainant? Um, but I think Rachel's very good at mm. setting up a kind of sense of that awkwardness. The the I mean, really, it's about social interaction, how we actually pass it out. And the awkwardness is what mm. she's very determined to kind of look at, really. That's how, you know, and that be it, that be, uh, uh, you know, compensated through alcohol or through mm. a kind of even, um, let's just say, fantasized almost uh, constriction mm. between as you said picked up on the stock the stock image mm. which is the kind of bland version of reality versus the full color version of romanticism mm. that kind of sits over that and these two in a way bounce off each other mm. uh, in her work um, yeah the the kind of like going between different different kinds of uh, fictional validations of of the of the self or the or the desire and the stock is the stock image is a kind of reassuring i guess template upon which those those kind of shameful and obscure and ambiguous desires can can unfold and it's also um interesting about the kind of the way her characters don't speak in her in her films and there's other kind of either there's a voiceover or they don't speak at all like in 10 seconds or greater and one in spirits where she uses yeah. intertitles to yeah. kind of and in a way it kind of it, it is this sort of uh different era she does almost hark back to a kind of silent film like yeah. uh yeah. the series of tableau um and and painterly or picturely like yeah. uh, restraint yeah. in terms of uh, social engagement you know there's not much movement it's very restrained yeah and also not not much expression mm. i think not much kind of individual kind of expression or narrative there's something about the narrative emerging from the interaction of stock gestures stock objects um and i guess from what lizzie was saying the presence nowadays of algorithms and kind of degraded labor relations in the complaint complex mm -hmm. in the relationship of complaint is interesting um, as another dimension to that um, interaction of prefabricated sort of agents. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think the theatricality of the utterance, I'm going to write a letter of complaint. I mean, people used to just say that and you felt, yes, <laughs> do it, you know, and there was this sense of I've been driven to this. 
But you don't really hear people say, I'm going to write an email of complaint. There's this sense of, as you talked about, the constituted authority. You kind of feel like, well, it'll go into a, you know, some, some sort of endless cyberspace and nobody will ever address it. And you'll go, you'll call India for, you know, and be put on hold. And, you know, this, this, it felt like very nostalgic. And I think that, that use of the silent cinema tropes also gave it that sense of that time is really gone mm. and you know my father would would still think would say you know write a letter you know the letter has this incredible force to to put something in writing and in your own hand and that's that's gone I mean it's fetishized now but mm. it's so yeah I don't know what people saying are that gives them that you talk about moral petulance which I thought was great and that kind of indignation of you know I'm going to do it and maybe it is transferred now into shame mm. I'm going to just you know yeah. bombard them and you know talk bad mouth them all over the internet and that will do it but you don't yeah. expect anyone to write an apology yeah that there there is there is a kind of um market-based fear which shame captures but not a kind of um i guess eth ethical um in interaction in the way like the letters of complaint in in rachel's film uh presuppose i mean i've also had experience with kind of the um writing letters of complaint <laughs> uh, or rather kind of threatening to expose them all over the internet <laughs> um and actually did work oh good yeah yeah, yeah, so it's a sort of, a sort of placatory measure of uh, shame, I suppose. Mm. You know, sort of drawing people back to, yeah, controlling methods. Mm. I think we should move on to a different kind of complaint. Uh, we're going to move to Lizzie Homersham and her uh, feature in this month's issue called Artists Must Eat, uh, which picks up on, uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be aware of, the sort of Zabladovich uh, furor that sort of, sort of really came into prominence, I think, towards the end of last year, which... Uh, I think you pick upon really sort of existing on an online uh, series of online debates, uh, but certainly was one I remember having lots of conversations with uh, various openings and so on in London. Um, let's start principally by talking about the role of the boycott and uh, why Zabludovich, in a way, became the centre to that particular uh, debate, really. Yeah, so I guess in a way this is my letter of complaint, though I don't expect it to be responded to by Zabunovich's collection. Um, so the first I was aware of a call to boycott Zabunovich was in um, August when I saw, actually no July, but that was just from one person's individual account and there was a Tumblr called boycott176.tumblr.com um, which is now unavailable if you try and go there. But then there was a, a group Tumblr that was more widely um, tweeted, although not very widely, um, hosted at bdz, bdzgroup.tumblr.com. Um, and that was the first I was aware of a call to boycott, although I had as early as 2011 when I applied for an internship at Zabludovich Collection, which I didn't get, and um, someone an artist friend told me, oh, some people say they're a dodgy kind of collection because they have some history, supposedly, um, in arms dealing. And at the time, I kind of mentally shrugged and thought, 
well, isn't all isn't all money dirty in the art world? I don't know. Is, are they really any worse? And I didn't actually do any further research. Um, neither did I do further research when I was assisting an artist in 2012 um, and helped to put an exhibition on, um, just a very short two-day exhibition at Zabudovich Collection. I still didn't research, even though the artist said to me, oh, some people are unhappy that this collection of um, books has been bought by Zabudovich. Um, but then in light of Operation Protective Edge, which is when this BDZ Tumblr came out, and then again in December when Mute magazine re-hosted the call to boycott because the initial text was taken down for reasons of impersonation, supposedly, mm -hmm. which means that you're sort of falsely representing um, a given name or, um, or person. Um, so that was taken offline, but Mute then hosted it on their website. In which, yeah, which in a way actually led to greater dispersal of that particular uh, information. Yeah, that correct? yeah. Yep. So it was then it then ended up on Eflux conversations and on um, Verso's blog, right. and also what was it Artnet? I think it was one of the sort of market-led. Yeah, um, Colleen Milliard you mentioned. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then that was a few days, yeah, sort of mid-December, Colleen Milliard um, sort of published a, a, news, a news piece quoting from Mute's hosted boycott call and um, alongside some comments. It was quite a, it was quite a sort of uh, nervous piece, I thought, because <laughs> it was really... Um, sort of siding with one of the one of the commenters on Mute's post who um, had kind of come across as very nervous saying um, that Mute should have pointed their readers towards the Spinwatch report um, published in 2013 as to whether BICOM, the British Israel Communications and Research Centre was really um, promoting a peaceful solution or whether that was their kind of public facade and perhaps their real actions were um, not in line with international recommendations on a peace process. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk, because, I mean, it's clear to, clear, to, clear, to, clear to point out the kind of, the, the, the ways in which they've invested, Zablodovich is both... Pojo and Anita and their father, um, you know, they they run different. They had run different companies, um, and their involvement with certain actions um, and the divest divestments of those actions too. So, for instance, I think you know Pojo is linked to settlements and so on. Um, do you want to yeah, talk about that? Yeah, it's really I mean, complicated. It's, yeah, it, because <laughs> it took me ages yeah. to like find out. And it's really hard to get a clear picture of which company is the corporate trust in which the Bludovich is contained. Mm -hmm. So Tamares, Tamares is a private investment group. I'm just reading because yeah, it's, clearer. it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> it's a private investment group focusing on real estate, technology, leisure and media, founded over 60 years ago as the corporate arm of the Bludovich Trust. 
the hallmark of their success has been the ability of their team to identify high-quality opportunities ahead of market sentiment and to move swiftly and decisively. The Zabludovich Trust funds a number of philanthropic causes, including Zabludovich Art Trust, which owns the Zabludovich Collection and supports emerging artists and art organisations in local communities. So um, if you go onto Tamara's, onto the website, um, you can find that they have, if you go to their Global Presence tab, they have these selected investments in Israeli companies such as Nafaim, um, which provides maintenance services to Israel Air Force, and they have investments in British Israel Investment Limited, which is a, a leading property company in Israel in shopping mall and commercial centres. Um, so, and in 2010, I think it was, um, it was found by Peter Oborn, not Osborne, <laughs> that, um, that Podrzyz Bludovich had investments in a shopping centre in Mal, sorry, I really don't know how to pronounce this, Adumin, um, which is in the West Bank. And Channel 4 covered the same story in, in their 2009 programme inside Britain's Israel lobby. But now yeah. it's kind of, it's becoming ever harder to sort of trace the connections of the Zabludovich couple as founders of Zabludovich Collection to, to um, Israeli companies and state interests because in 2013, um, Podrzyz Bludovich um, stepped down from his role as chairman as of BICOM. So it's becoming kind of mm -hmm. ever more difficult to yeah, in a way, to associate to, to, them yeah, to with kind of anything bad. Mm -hmm. I suppose as there's more scrutiny of that, the, the terrain kind of goes towards more scrutiny of Israel's policies and mm. kind of Israeli advocacy abroad, the more they kind of withdraw from those direct engagements yeah, that they yeah. were previously quite happy to pursue. Absolutely. I was quite interested to read the PACB guidelines, which um, include lobby lobby groups, Israeli lobby groups, amongst um, boycottable institutions and companies. And um, that was revised in 2014, but Podrzyz Zabludovich resigned his role as chairman. I don't know if there's any other involvement still ongoing um, in BICOM in, in 2013. So it seems that the the links become mm -hmm. ever... Suppressed. Ever suppressed, yeah. <laughs> or cut. I mean, we can't say, can we? We're, it's allegedly, I mean, we're sort of speculating on their involvement yes. here now because yeah. um, we don't have that material really. Um, but in a way, d regardless, let's say, we, we can look at the ways in which artists have responded to and how they've implicated themselves within this, because mm. Zabludovich are obviously key players in terms of actually funding and supporting younger artists' work. Um, can we talk a little bit about the ways in which that sort of manifested itself? I mean, they've been collecting now for how long? I mean, several, I mean, at least Since a decade. Since 95. Or so. Oh, longer, okay, 20 but, years. But um, that was when they first established a private collection, and... Um, it was made public much more recently. Apparently about 10% of it is on view. Yeah. Um, 
at any one time and they loan to many public museums and they have this enormous residency. Well, I don't know if it's that enormous because the island in, res in Finland on which the residency is based called Salvisalo is so small that you can't, it's not listed on Google Maps. I, I actually had <laughs> lunch with some Finnish friends on Saturday and I asked them, did they know anything about Sarvisalo? Had they ever been there? And they, they'd never heard of it, nor had they heard of Zabludovic. Um, but there, there's quite an extensive article on this residency, which just sounds like some kind of artist heaven, um, were it not for <laughs> the Zabludovic couple or their funding, unless that features in your heaven, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so let's, talk, let's talk a little <laughs> bit more wider about the notion of boycotts as well because I think yeah. it's interesting to think of it you know not just through this particular instance but um, uh, but also you know for instance we could talk about BP and you know the art and oil concerns which similarly yeah. you know the sort of greenwashing of a major institution you know and it's just been revealed how little actual pay you know, funding rather that BP have given this organisation um, due to increasing pressure from the Art Not Oil campaign, uh, which is so they just released these figures. Actually, they're in this month's issue of Art Monthly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th th there seems to be a series of sort of branding exercises which seems to be going on, and that is used and in instrumentalising art practice as its root. Yeah. Um, so in a way, what you're seeing increasingly is these effects and in a, and what we i mean we as in you know people that are in these institutions say how we respond to that is key mm. so um what you what we need to sort of address and what you're sort of tackling in your you know in your essay really is about how internet art or post-internet art practices seem to have been sort of um subjugated or at least uh, seem malleable by the very powers that seem just sort of want it and they've sort of embraced it. Can you talk about maybe why you sort of pick, why, you, why mm. this seems to be happening? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't think it's particular to post-internet art, mm -hmm. but I think that um, the fact that the prominence of, well, that post-internet comes into the cultural sphere as a term and as a kind of way of working, more or less, um, and certainly a subject of debate and um, discussion it's come perhaps it's been most important from 2008 to 2012 and is increasingly discussed well it's still discussed but I think the forms of the forms that the work takes are very diverse so um, whereas you might associate a typical you might have a picture in your mind of something on an iPhone that's kind of shiny and pastel colored or a painting that's kind of in the style of that shiny pastel colored iPhone. Mm -hmm. um, that's far from what I consider post-internet art to be. Um, but yeah, the fact that 2008 to 2012 coincides with financial crash, the financial crash and um, people graduating in this graduate with no future context. Mm -hmm. So tuition fees rise, um, universities have less and less funding, um, so do cultural institutions, the Arts Council has less and less funding to give, and so increasingly, if arts organizations want to maintain the level of programming, the pace of it, and the, the production costs that they're used to, then they have to look elsewhere than government funding to, 
to carry on mm -hmm. unless they want to change course, which I would be very happy to see. But because that pace is, un is unrelenting and because the standard is set, who's going to be the one who draws back and says, actually, we're going to do things differently. We're only going to put one exhibition on this year, maybe. No one's really going to do that, as far as I see. So instead, they go to Sabludovich, they go to any other corporation who's willing to give them some funds. BP, for example, I think I read Platform's tweet earlier today saying that it, it took something like 13 minutes. Yeah, we calculate that. <laughs> oh, that was your calculation? <laughs> yes. Okay, so 13 minutes yeah. to um, to actually make the amount of money yes. that they donated to, yes, that's right. to Tate, yeah. which is appalling. And I mean, if these places are still... Yeah, it's it's really seriously appalling. And I would love the same to happen to to Zabludovich collection as happened to BP, but I suppose they're... Are they public? Are no, they private? Yeah. Well, they have this public institution and um, they have, they're open to their local community. Um, but, and at the same time, they fund this large list of, um, of institutions, Art Angel, Camden Arts Centre, Contemporary Arts Society, Cubit, ICA... Tate, U University of the Arts London, Whitechapel, um, RCA, and Goldsmiths. And at the same time, Goldsmiths mm. kind of runs on its... Um, a lot of its credibility comes from its kind of radical status, mm. and they have a very strong um, Palestinian solidarity. You, I mean, exactly what you're talking about, really. It shows you the level at which these institutions, due to the denigration and decimation of public-funded public funded institutions, you know, and the level at by which these institutions are ultimately compromised and your your point really is about at what level and what stakes are being driven mm. by these compromises mm. are we selling ourselves short are we just rolling over and uh, accepting this or actually are we going to do something about it and that, that in a way that is your call to, call to arms really it's what you're doing Call, call a call to, to non-arms. Arms. <laughs> yes well um, yes that's right <laughs> yeah um well it's i'm not about to I'm not about to say that I don't think you can escalate the boycott, a boycott very easily because I'm not about to um, not go and see any exhibitions at Hubert, for example, mm -hmm. or um, Serpentine, where they also donate as patrons um, because I want to see things there. And But I will, I am prepared not to see things at the Bludovich collection. I'm happy for that to be a loss a kind of cultural mm -hmm. loss, something that I won't be able to see because I don't agree with their politics. Can I, can I just yeah, say something? Uh, but one of the uh, boycott um, BDZ uh, group's um, propositions was for artists to withdraw the aesthetic or cultural value mm. of mm. their work from the, from the collection. So it's withdrawing the work from the collection, but also making a kind of gesture of saying this work has no value, like the Robert Morris withdrawal of mm -hmm. aesthetic value um, piece. So, yeah, that's just prompted mm. by what you were just saying. Yeah. I suppose the other thing that's worth thinking about in terms of culture boycott is where uh, the people on the other end of it are also, you know, there is a, a loss of what you're talking about. But say, for instance, that like the recent Israeli boycotts, you know, for instance, a voice of dissent that could be coming from an Israeli artist can't necessarily be exercised because of the position as an Israeli artist, you know, things like that. So there is a complexity around ways in which dissent or questions can be raised um you know the sort of flatlining of a boycott sometimes can seem rather um 
in a way naive you know when actually the as you say there is a complexity around it too that's happening and unfolding in a real way mm. um so yeah i think there is it's a complicated debate certainly um around that but you just don't you, you don't you also bring in a much broader picture as well which is the notion of hunger and i think that's actually the key aspect by which you kind of bring mm. to two ideas together really which is the notion of hunger both from the artist's perspective i i need to eat versus mm. the collector i i'm hungry to buy yeah. so you know this this hunger in a way is the driving force um that kind of links this notion of one kind of body together and uh, that being the art world in some ways but also the human body um you want to talk a little bit about how you hinge that idea yeah um I guess I see, sticking with the case of Sabridovich, that the collection presents themselves as willing to meet the needs of artists, um, but at the expense, and particularly at an early stage of their career. I read, and I forget if it was either in the Flash Arts magazine article or the um, Apollo magazine article, they're both in print, so you can't find them online actually but um um in these articles Anita Sabludovich says you know her husband prefers the work of more established artists but she thinks well why would she spend far more money on just one work when she can spend a small amount of money on on many works so mm. th this is the particular market um yeah and also and i think i was reading about the you talk about stefan Shimshowitz and one of his uh so, you know sort of people that he sells to you know he similarly they said why buy you know a print of an andy warhol when i can buy a younger artist that's an original and yeah. uh, speculate on its value increasing um and you also say you know in context with that the sort of that these buyers uh, Zabladovich and also say like stefan Shimshowitz, who's a, a more recent player let's say mm. um how they've kind you know it, they've overshadowed what i can remember you know charles archie back in the 90s you know he, him being a more of a driving force in terms of buying younger works mm. um so yeah there is a shift in that way and these are, do you feel like i mean do you think that there's more of a voracious appetite is that what you're also saying that the the the, 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 the sort of thrust by which these people are now speculating on younger artists work is unique to now um well i can't I wasn't as well informed around mm -hmm. the time of around Saatchi's heyday as I am now, so it's hard to compare like for like. But um, I would say that phenomena like Paddles On, for example, offers a lot of work at low prices, um, and it's debatable whether that's really going to do the young artist any good in terms of their sort of long-term success and cumulative um yeah if, if that's really helping them yeah. establish a market and i think i think there was this false perception around um around the idea that getting a market quickly is very helpful because it instantly puts you in a position of competition with your peers as opposed to one of collaboration and sort of growth mm. um supporting one another survival of the fittest yeah totally <laughs> exactly yeah. so um i think it becomes especially worrying when you consider that people who've who've been 
traditionally excluded from the market or less 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 and less visible mm. from the market and bearing in mind that that impacts on various levels the artist without a market or without commercial gallery representation is less likely to have work in a public institution later on in their career they're less likely to have magazine articles written about them um, and women and anyone not identified as a white male is likely to have less of a stake in this market and their work is not fetching the same amount so mm -hmm. for this market to come in at an earlier stage exactly it, it it puts in this this level of competition which i don't think is is healthy and which i see the zbudovich collection as being part of Yes, sorry. But there, but there's also, I guess, a relation between the increasingly kind of um, defunded, corporatized landscape of public institutions, nonprofits that you've described, and this kind of refiguring of young artists as kind of consumables or kind of cheap, mm. cheap consumables, mm. is like um, the institutions have to take on the logic of their funders, just as artists need to take on the logic of the collectors yeah. as part of their own survival strategy. Yeah. But then even very successful artists like Richter, who's just broken the, his record for selling an abstract painting, something like 30 million, he, he sees very little of that that goes to the seller. And the art goes to a bunker in East Asia. It's not even seen. Mm. So, you know, the, it would be great if there were more sort of safeguards about the work not disappearing from public view and more you know agreements that work goes back and money goes back to the artists and he's a, in, into completely photocopying doing fo color photocopies of the work and giving it out and absolutely appalled by it and you've got this highly inflated market and then like you say people can't afford to be artists or art writers in another piece by Gilda Williams in, in this this uh, month's issue she says you know writers can fit in their their writing round their paid work schedules. It's completely understood that we all have to do other jobs in order to write about art. That market is gone. And what Lizzie's article really does point out, it's not just what we'll do for money, it's what we'll do for no money. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, that also yeah. is it's a bigger, much bigger question and, and a series of features really rather than one. I mean it's really this has been bubbling along for a long time and it's great to get some of the facts out but there's also things like how do people make these choices about you know keeping your brain alive and you know slaving away at a job that's terribly boring or you know doing sex work i mean you were really hinting at these incredibly difficult life choices that people have to make in order to make art and it's still you know is it going to just be for white rich people making mm. it and writing about it and buying it. Yeah, we don't really have much more time, but we can cover, you do mention Beatriz or Paul uh, Preciado's writing and the sort of pharmacology mm. and the sort of this notion of the body and what's the body's at stake in yeah. in in the art world. Um, briefly, can we just sort of tie up with that um, Yeah, point? well, I thought because, because some of the artists who were involved in the event that at Zbludovic that sort of brought the call to boycott mm. to a head and um, from prompted Mute to re-host the, the call to boycott, a lot of them are involved in in really promoting network space like on social media and in other ways um, as 
this really important space for asserting your solidarity with with more oppressed groups, but also really promoting gendered debates, debates around gender. And I thought the, yeah, I saw Paul B. Preciado's um, text is really um, relevant because it, um, it draws on this division of public and private, but also it talks about the internalization of um, the panopticon society yeah. and partly through the contraceptive pill. Yeah. And um, this was really... Okay, I'm being we're going to have to cut. But, uh, yeah. So unfortunately, <laughs> we don't have any more time to talk about okay. this piece. But uh, the, the the full feature is in this month's issue. So it just leaves me to say a great thank you to Cherry Smith, uh, Lizzie Hummersham, and to Marina Schmidt for joining us this evening. Many thanks, and many thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye bye.